Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 110 awesome interviews in this podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my past episodes on any podcast app to listen to them all. Today's show features Pat C., whose nearly 50 years of sobriety matches the same half-century of his active service and participation in Alcoholics Anonymous. Raised in a dysfunctional family where alcoholism was rife, Pat found ease, comfort, and a sense of belonging by drinking and using drugs. Use, overuse, and abuse of these substances quickly progressed. Pat's life devolved into the morass that is alcoholism. By his late teens, the disease was controlling every facet of his existence. Reaching AA at age 20, he dug into the program with old-timers who taught him the very fundamentals of staying sober and helping other alcoholics achieve sobriety. Remarkably, Pat's unwavering involvement in AA has impacted countless people over the years. He has served as a role model for others who aspire to all the gifts God fulfills for those who work the program. That he stayed sober through divorces, grave illnesses, and family of origin upheavals is proof positive that help and support sought from AA fellows is there for all. In the process of staying sober, Pat has become expert at passing on what he has learned to others. In a humble and loving way, he has given back to AA that which he was given so freely over the decades. With 49 and a half years of AA recovery, Pat's story is a joy to listen to and packs a wallop of inspiration and hope for newcomers and old-timers alike. Frankly, no introduction I could do would pay sufficient tribute to the accomplishments that Pat has graciously gleaned from his ongoing involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe we will find this episode of AA Recovery Interviews of great interest and invite you to listen carefully for the next hour to the words of wisdom expressed by my good friend and AA brother, Pat C. My name is Pat. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Pat. Welcome to the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. I'm really super happy that you were able to join me this morning. I know that you've been listening to the podcasts uh, almost since I started with them. What do you think overall? Oh, well, for me, it's been a real blessing. I live in Austin now and moved here about 10 years ago. And uh -huh. for about five years before that, I was in Magnolia. And so I kind of was not seeing my crew that for, you know, 20, 30 years went to meetings with all the time. And mm -hmm. so hearing Bob B, Diane G, Scott B, you know, Jeff B's story, it just just reconnected me with everybody. So I look forward to every time I get a notice you bringing someone else out. Well, that's great to hear. I've, I've really enjoyed doing it too. And being able to connect so many people with the entire story of which they only hear small little pieces. It, no matter how many meetings they go to, people have the favorite things that they're going to share, but they never get too deep into anything else. So the hour-long or hour and 10-minute long interviews give people a much broader background, backstory to contextualize what they're hearing in meetings and that sort of thing. And I will say you do a great job of asking the questions and leading it and getting different ones of us, like you say, to not just tell our story the way we tell it all the time but yeah. to, to dig down a little deeper in certain things so yeah you got a gift there thank you and for you of course that's a really really deep dig because you're you've got what 49 years sobriety now correct well, 49. november 28 yeah 73 so this year this year is my big one 5-0 in november so do you have any special yeah. plans for it oh, it'll be a big party i had a pretty large party for 45 and all of my friends from Houston, you know, Miles, Joe P, George J. Yeah. Just, and all came up here to Austin and had a big party. But number 50, and I'm very entrenched up here in Austin and the Lakeway family and group. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be, be a big celebration. I'm the least likely guy to be doing that. <laughs> but here I am. Well, and what's amazing about it is that with 49, almost 50 years of sobriety, you're still a relatively young man, which means you must have gotten sober. <laughs> you must have gotten sober at a pretty early age. 
four days after my 20th birthday. So I'm 69. So I'll be 74 days before my sobriety birthday with 50. God, that's amazing. There, there's so few people running around these days with 45 and 50 years of sobriety, some of whom I've had on the show before. And it's, it's very interesting to get their perspective of what AA is like today versus what it was like when they first got sober. And that's something I wanted to ask you about. What do you think it would be like for you, knowing what you know now about AA, to have gotten sober more recently than 1973? What, what are some of the big differences that you noticed between AA, the program, back in 73, and how it's evolved to how it is today? That's a great question, and it's really difficult to, to give a real thorough answer. But my experience when I first got sober and I went to the men's group and mm-hmm. Alder Street group and mm-hmm went to men's meeting, but they didn't really have a philosophy, you know, we don't shoot our wounded, we love you back into the program. In those days, it's like, if you're not done drinking, don't come in here. And if you're going to come in here and whine about drinking, don't let the door hit you in the ass. You know, I literally heard Bob Pete tell a guy in one of my early meetings that, uh, you know, if you're not done and you keep kind of drinking, just tell me what brand you like. I'll send you a case. <laughs> oh, don't waste our time. And so I'm sitting there. It's still 20 years old. It was just very, very different. And, and there was no, the only detox was, you know, what you heard about going to the men's center with Francis. There's mm-hmm. nobody, we all just sweated it out and didn't sleep for a few days. And I had mm. seizures withdrawn and I didn't even realize, you know, nowadays it's everybody when they get the bottom it's like oh help me you know let's go to detox for a week and then i got to find the right treatment center you know for the third or fourth time so that, and i don't know that it's necessarily bad but it's just definitely different and everything back then was really about doing the 12th step about someone else bringing the message to you and helping you work through the steps were there very many other 20 year olds running around early when you first came in a few because i actually went to adapt where i had my first contact uh with the program, my father had seen something on Crisis Hotline on three or four days before I came in the program. I had a seizure in front of my family on Thanksgiving morning. Mm. Uh, my takeaway from that is coming out of the seizure and seeing my brother, sister, mother, and grandmothers, the uh-huh. pain in their faces. And, you know, I didn't care about myself, but somehow I still had a conscience. and my experience with alcoholics and AA is that's a lot of times what gets us back. He saw that because he reported that after my seizure, I had a problem. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I started in PADAP. And at that time, there were, they had what was called an older group and a younger group. Mm -hmm. And there were nine people in the older group, and they probably had 30 in the younger group. And mm-hmm. back then, every all ages could mix. You probably couldn't do that today with the all right. regulations. But I was right at home with the 13, 14, 15-year-olds, even though I was 20, because from 13 on, I started drinking and using and had just totally stopped my emotional growth. So hmm. it was perfect hmm. for me. I fit right in. So you were frozen in time there, huh? For sure, for sure. For me, the alcohol allowed me to just numb my feelings. I had my father left when I was 16. I was not a happy kid. I was never felt like I fit in. I had to wear an eye patch to school. Never mm-hmm. felt like I was enough. And so the alcohol just, I was able to numb all that. I had no feelings. I'd never even cried until I got sober. Now I cry about every third share, you know. (laughs) 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 Totally different. So yeah, when I got here, I was just totally shut down. It wasn't until I had my first spiritual experience that the dam broke and, you know, I started Uh connecting my head and heart with each other. Well, most people don't get to the point at which they're having seizures at 19 uh, if they haven't had some sort of problems from the very start. Tell me what your family of origin was like with regard to alcoholism and functional versus dysfunctional. Uh, I'm the oldest of four children. Uh Two of my other brothers are sober now. One still goes to meetings. And both my parents are, are, are alcoholics. My mother's deceased. She died with about five or six years of sobriety. Mm. My father probably had 40-ish years. He just died a couple of years ago, but 
Mm-hmm. He was only active for a few years, and after that, he didn't drink. But uh, he was an alcoholic. So I grew up around that, seeing them drinking all the time. And when they divorced, and I was in high school, uh, my mother always kept beer in the refrigerator. She drank every single night. Had a medicine chest full of Valium, Librium, all the drugs that the psychiatrists used to give people back in those days and mm-hmm. it was just a normal part of my day and living I didn't think anything was wrong with it you know it wasn't, wasn't a problem it was a solution was was there abuse amongst the family uh, from your parents uh, anything that was what you might consider abject abuse or even subtle abuse in those days what i grew up around and you know, became a defective character for me too was my father was very uh, sarcastic, mm. always put my mother down, and all of it, he, he did not have the ability to connect on any kind of feeling level. Mm-hmm. Well, I was very sarcastic when I used it. When I first got sober, it took me a while, because I would hurt, I, I could make a joke at somebody else's expense and be funny and, and be very hurtful in that, and that I learned that from the master, yeah. my dad. And we usually do, I think, I the same same here. And you, you kind of wish at some point in your life that you didn't have that, but it was ingrained at a point at which you probably had no choice. Yeah. Let me ask you, when you were a kid and you thought about what an alcoholic, sober or still drinking, let's say just a, a regular alcoholic was, someone said the word alcoholic to you, would you as a kid have envisioned Pat, the adult, as the alcoholic? Or what was your perception of what an alcoholic was when you were a kid. Never even heard the word. Alcohol was around all the time. My father took me to Padap and I heard about AA and 12-step programs. That was the first time I'd heard of, never heard of anybody getting sober, never heard of the uh, the program Alcoholics Anonymous, Mm. know nothing until four days after my 20th birthday. Wow, that's amazing. A few kids in my high school went off to like, psych ward in uh, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. So a couple of the kids whose family had some money disappeared in high school and never got, didn't hear from them again, but never heard of anybody quitting or wanting to quit, anything like that. Hmm. Of the people that you got sober with in that program, how many of those folks are still around today or, or stayed sober in, until their death? Oh gosh, you know, that's been one of the greatest gifts for me is the friends that I've made and that have stayed sober. A few of them have gone out, come back in. Yeah. But if I had to give a number and I and think of their names right offhand, there's probably seven or eight hmm. that you know came in within the first couple of years that I got sober and are still around. And, and some like John G. You know, he's not here, but he was certainly instrumental. Taking an additional look at life for you as a kid, what sort of spillover was there from your home life into your into the outside world, or was a lid kept on the secrets that were going on in the family? I was always striving to get my father's attention, mm-hmm. which he was, it was very hard to do. So the, the spillover for me was just performing, making good grades, trying to be the star of the baseball team, the football team. Mm. And, uh, and that would be the only time he would come to my sports games and, and that would be the times I would see him. But when we were at home, there was no connection or anything like that. But I pretty much just thought it was normal. We didn't have much money. I would say we were lower middle class. Even when I was in seventh, eighth grade, we still just had one car. Mm-hmm. Father drove it to work. You know, we got three pairs of jeans uh, every summer. and. It, something went wrong and you tore them or whatever you mom would just iron a patch on it you know you didn't think of yeah. we just didn't have much clothes would go on layaway that sort of thing so i became more self-sufficient earlier i think too i started working at a very young age and i've always worked to provide for myself how about amongst your, your siblings were there big differences between the way the folks treated your siblings and the way they treated you or was everybody treated about the same no, no, you know, we all had our our roles in the family. And uh, when my brother went to treatment, uh, I saw the Father Martin film for the first mm-hmm. time that has this little mobile with the four different things on him. You know, one's the hero child, that was me. One's the mascot, that was our youngest one. And I forget what the other two are, but our family was just textbook 
into the dysfunction of an alcoholic family. Mm-hmm. One of the big things for me, even though my father is the one that came and got me when I was at rock bottom in Austin and took me to the program and saved my life, I became very angry at him. And I felt like if I'd had a good dad and he had done the things that all of my friends' dads were doing, mm-hmm. I would not be an alcoholic. And he would, you know, people would say, well, he did the best he could. And I said, well, maybe he did, but it wasn't good enough. And Howard, I held on to that for probably 35 years, <laughs> something like that. So anyway, that's a long story, but that that's one where now in retrospect, where that I, I contributed to it as much as he did. Yeah. I, held on to that through sobriety and don't recommend that. I kind of did the same thing, Pat, and that was that even though I was working the steps and thought I had worked the steps around my dad, there was so much residual stuff under the surface that, you know, just to get the step out of the way, I'd say, okay, I've I've made my amends to my dad when I talked to him one time or Mm -hmm. listed all the resentments about my dad. And then over the years, what would happen is things would pop up connected to that, keep popping up. And then somewhere along the way, my sponsor would say, you know, it's probably a time for you to do a little bit more work on this specific. Mm -hmm. Did that kind of thing occur to you? Uh, Oh yeah. Ours came down to when my brother you probably know Tom has yeah. been around the rooms, was getting married to Margie, who's been around the rooms. Uh, and my father and I had had a serious falling out after when Tom went to treatment. Mm-hmm. And my dad did not go to the family week. And at the family week, they had me write an anger letter to my father, which I did, tore up a phone book. And, you know, all oh, this geez. anger was there. Yeah, you know that, how it goes. And came home and my dad called and it's upbeat attitude oh how'd it go I'm sorry i couldn't make it there of course he didn't pay either so i had resentment for that uh and he said when did you bring me any pamphlets anything you can tell me about it i said yeah come on over <laughs> totally without calling my sponsor i unloaded the anger letter <laughs> with whatever i had five or six years sober oh, felt man. very self-righteous about it all yeah and when I did that, he uh, said, well, you know, if that's the way you feel, son, we got to terminate our relationship right now. And, and always one of my big fears in all my life is people going away and leaving me. And so, you know, I expressed my feelings, not appropriately for sure, but mm-hmm. nonetheless did it. And then what I was, my worst fear came true. And I didn't speak to him for a couple of years. And then when it was mm-hmm. time for Tom and Margie's wedding, he told Tom and Margie, well, if you're inviting Pat, I'm not going. Hmm. And yeah, it's just, this is adults doing this. And Margie said, well, that's ridiculous. Dad had picked up the anger letter after I read it to him. I told him I didn't think we could fix the relationship ourselves, but I was willing to go to counseling. And I said I would pay half if he ever wanted to. And so Margie convinced him to do it. And he called me and we started a a family counseling process he and I that was very very healing mm-hmm. so this was five or six years into your sobriety that this was going on yeah still early on yeah yeah what was it like for you knowing what you knew about your relationship with your dad to be talking with guys you sponsored about the same kind of situations and how they should handle it good question uh, you know once I had done the counseling with my father and uh, this guy named Don and my sponsor had gone to him and he was really good at these things and we had some sessions alone with Don and Uh then at the end we had like a three-hour session when all this culminated and Don had had helped each of us compile some questions to ask each other and one of the questions uh, I asked my father and I mean I said what's the most significant important thing you got from your father Hmm. and he looked at me and he said, my dad didn't give me anything. I didn't, you know, I got nothing. And all of a sudden the light bulb went off for me. Like I'm trying to get something from him that he didn't know what it is and he doesn't have it to give. Hmm. And and that was a real turning point for me and a, something I've tried to carry through the rest of my sobriety is always you can't put yourself in someone else's shoes. Yeah, I haven't walked in his shoes mm-hmm. and I make judgments and determinations in it wrongly because of that, because I think I have and I think I know. It was sad and then I told my father at the end of the meeting, hey, I'm taking responsibility and for my life and 
I have no expectations on you anymore from this point forward. And he stood up and shook my hand and said, congratulations. And, and, you know, that really hurt my feelings. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I, <laughs> it really, really did. And that fed the anger that I carried for all, for many more years. And from that day on until the last few years of his death, I didn't call him dad anymore. I just called him by his first name. He didn't have any traits or characteristics. Uh, I wanted to mimic her. And, uh, you know, the, the other issue I've always had was feeling secure or having security. Mm-hmm. And anytime I do that, it seems like the men or women in my life leave, you know, and that's was another, you know, example of it. Yeah. That's a recurrent theme for us alcoholics, isn't it? Yeah. That people will leave even the people yeah. who are toxic in our life, you know? And, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've had the same kind of thing <laughs> in my family where my older brother cut the family off about 40 years ago and hasn't spoken a word. Mm. The way those things unfold within families is so difficult at the time, but years later when it still keeps cropping up. And one of my difficulties, you mentioned what your dad said after that occurred, saying congratulations, sounds like that sarcasm that you mentioned earlier. Uh, my dad, one of the most difficult parts of making you know, making peace with him over the years was his mind started to go and he started to get dementia. And mm. So he couldn't remember, you know, his response mm-hmm. about everything was, as I was trying to process what had happened to me as a kid, he didn't remember. And that was so frustrating, but somewhere along the way I had to use the fact that he was getting dementia along with a certain amount of forgiveness to be able to deal with that. But that is a terrible thing to have to deal with, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is, but you know, to your credit, you were able to speak your truth, whether it registered with him or not. Yeah. I think that's what I was able to do with my father as well. You were you were able to do that too. Yeah. So one of the things about these interviews is that depending on who it is I'm interviewing, uh, you know, somebody with just a few years, it's easy to spend lots of time about what it was like and what happened with a short amount of time between getting sober and today. Yours is kind of the flip side of that, where uh, you got sober pretty young, but there's like almost 50 years now of sobriety <laughs> yeah. that have been affected by your decision to come into Alcoholics Anonymous. What was your impression when you first came in, and what was going on in your life that kind of tripped the lever for you in AA? I weighed 117 pounds. I was a convicted felon at mm. age 18. Well, I was convicted of transporting and selling marijuana. Uh, uh, I was riding around Houston on the only thing I owned, which was a stolen 10-speed bike, hair down to my shoulders, you know, on seven years probation, and wondering why I couldn't get a break. It's like this black cloud followed me everywhere and the people around me weren't having the same experience. Hmm. And so I I was convinced I would be dead by the time I was 30. I was really hopeless, helpless, all that. I was on seven years probation, tried to rob a drugstore. Police came, I ran, I got away. Why I didn't go to the penitentiary, I don't know. But I, I, I was truly sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I had never been offered, uh, you know, help before. And the, the key thing I felt the first time is I felt love from other people. I felt, yeah. I saw people that had something I wanted and uh, it, it was been like that ever since. I always say, uh, saw AA and it was like, you know, you want to be happy. Here's a blueprint for happiness, a blueprint for your life, the 12 steps. And I, I often say, you know, it tells us in the book that we come to this point where you cross a line and there's no going back. Mm-hmm. I really think I'm the guy I started on the other side of the line. Mm-hmm. You know, first time I took <laughs> it in, I didn't, there was never any social drinking, never any moderation, no, nothing. It's just as much as I could and whatever I could get, you know, until I crashed and burned. What age did you start that at? What, what age did you take your first drink? 13. 13. That's about average for a lot of the people who I talk to. Yeah. So that behavior of drinking and I'm assuming drug use occurred during your junior high and high school. Correct. Were, were there certain crowds that you hung with that made it more difficult or less difficult? Well, when my parents divorced and uh, I, we grew up in Meyerland. I went to Bel Air High School one year, very unhappy, 
at that time drinking, mm-hmm. but I hadn't found drugs, but they divorced. We moved to West University, which way back then was actually a move down from Meyerland. Yeah. And in my first day when I'm sitting in homeroom and I'm looking out the door, I see a guy who, you know, and I know he doesn't mind me using his name, Joe P. Yeah. Walking down the hall, snapping his fingers. And I could tell he was the guy. He's in my fourth <laughs> period class, uh, gym class. He comes over to me. I had long sun bleached hair because I was a surfer. He was a surfer. Uh-huh. And he said, hey, man, this this place is really a drag. He said, why don't we get out of here and get high? Mind you, I hadn't even really smoked pot in my life. I said, sure, great idea. And it was fourth period. We ran out. He had a van in the parking lot. It's a great van. It was a, one of those old ones with the engines in the front and had like a Corvette engine in it, but it only had three gears. It didn't have a fourth gear. And had the little curtain with the, like they had, you know, and uh-huh. giant speakers in the back. And we we went out and he put a gas mask on me and got me high and I came back to school and I was the most popular new kid ever. Yeah, so that was the start of a long run, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and a long friendship. Just talked to Joe yesterday. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I see Joe at least once or twice a week myself, and we've yeah. been friends for a very, very long time. You know, looking at Joe today, you could never imagine that he was that kind of kid then. But yeah, but he's just an amazing man, and he's helped an awful lot of people over the years. Love that guy. So you were off to the races then, I guess, at that point with regard to yeah. marijuana. How about booze? I always booze anytime I could get them. Yeah, I always had booze. Uh-huh. When I found Quaaludes, you know, somebody said, hey, you can take one of these. It's like drinking a six-pack of beer. You don't have to pee as much. Found Quaaludes. And, and I never had a governor, if you will, on myself. I just took as much, as long, as hard as I could. You know, and then started recreationally, you know, IV drug user, you know, which ultimately caught up with me because I had hep C, you know, 10 or 12 years ago. And, yeah. But yeah, so yeah, I never had any moderation at all or tried to. Was it the idea of trying to keep the feeling that you had continuously or were there other reasons why? I think the whole key for me is I did not like the way I felt naturally. I get it. Could, could not handle the way I felt naturally. And that's what's so hard when we get sober and the stopping is really the easy part, but stay and stop and facing all these things the, the the drinking and drugs we all know are just symptoms you know yeah and it's it's a lifetime journey dealing with what's behind that you mentioned the hep c pat and i've interviewed a number of people who you know uh who had hep c as a result of iv drug use sure what was your experience with regard to heroin or other drugs well it's just a very quick uh hard high heroin was around i didn't get to do that very often but i shot up a lot of barbiturates which Mm. are terrible to shoot up because they make big bumps and stuff in your arms uh but uh it was just like i didn't differentiate you know at first it was like i'm only going to shoot up on the weekend that didn't last long so Mm. it was just you know if i had pills that i had to eat i'd eat them if i could shoot them i would shoot them just not the guy I am today, let me just say that. I'll bet, I'll bet. You said you had the hep C. When was that first diagnosed? How many years sober were you? Must have been 38 or 39 years sober, and it was just came up on an insurance policy that was getting renewed. I've been getting a physical every year. I guess they just weren't checking for it or whatever, and then I got turned down on renewing a large term policy that I needed and went to the doctor and found out it was true. God, that must have been quite a shock. It it was, but actually it explained, I was having some symptoms more frequently, Uh like it's much more than flu-like, but my energy was gone. My strength would leave me for a couple weeks then it would come back and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And that, that was what it was. And so, and it was a year process uh, getting through it. And here again, the the outpouring of love from the fellowship and the friends and the men that I had known uh, was just amazing. I could feel the prayers. And mm. I did not did not clear in six months and wasn't for sure I'd clear in a year of doing the medicine. I was totally mm-hmm. disabled. They didn't have the stuff then that they have now that clears much quicker, but ultimately I did. We'll be right back. 
My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. That must have been a really weird experience to be sober that long and then have a major consequence of what had happened before you got sober come up in your life again. I, I mean, that, I, I can't imagine what that must have felt like. Yeah, well, they told me if I, you know, I stopped drinking four days after my 20th birthday, and I probably contacted it within six months of that time. That's when uh, it was making the worst decision. But they said if I had not stopped drinking, I would have probably been dead by 30 or need a liver transplant. Right. But I still had stage two cirrhosis of the liver. They go in and do a biopsy, and you know, it start. It was your liver still starts deteriorating from the disease. But but God had a plan in it all. Yeah, I guess so. So between the hep C and the cirrhosis, that can take somebody out pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I know that happened to our friend John G., right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And several other guys we know have had to battle it. But the treatment for it is just so debilitating back then with the interferon and the ribavirin. The last 90 days, I was just in a wheelchair. Couldn't even function hardly. Yeah, it was very horrible treatment. Yeah, it's like the ultimate in ironies, you know, that you're sober a long time and then you realize the effect, it's still affecting your life greatly. Yeah, uh-huh. Yep. So once you got into the program, you got yourself a sponsor right away? Absolutely, absolutely. How long was that man in your life? The first one was actually the guy that was a counselor, first guy I talked to. Uh-huh. I got my AA desire chip probably two to three weeks after I was got sober and was and Tommy A was telling the story at that club there on Westview. Got my chip, and then Tom A, who was there, uh, told me about uh, this men's group meeting in Alder Street, and I started going over there, and I met. John D., who became my sponsor and was my sponsor for probably at least 30 years. And he was the guy that showed me that it was okay to share your feelings. It was okay to be human. Mm -hmm. I met with him and four or five other guys. Every Friday night, we'd go to Los Tios, and we'd go over to his house and have kind of like an accountability deal. And why he took me under his wing, I don't know, because they were you know, mid-30s and successful businessmen, and I'm just a kid trying to make sense of all this stuff. But the stuff they could say and their ability to be open and honest just was mind-blowing to me at the time. And uh, I owe them a debt that I can only repay by passing it on. That's so important. It occurs to me, though, that there are some of the older timers who were not that open with feelings and that sort of thing. Guys I've sponsored over the years who said that their first sponsor, you know, if it wasn't in the book, then don't believe it. And uh, if you if you feel a certain way about it, you know, kind of try and swallow up those feelings and just get to work on what's really wrong. And so so fortunate that you fell in with a group like that right away. Oh, yeah, because there, there still were the Bob P's, the, the Luigi, you know, uh, Francis Wyther. They were a little bit different, but John D. was kind of the pioneer on therapy, working on themselves. And it started me on a journey. I've been in psychotherapy and therapy almost my entire sobriety. I've had a couple of little lags. I've got a great wife, great life now. They have couples therapy. Mm -hmm. And when I had 37 years, I had the hep C. Uh, my life came apart for the second time, and I went to treatment in Canada to a 21-day closed group process and really got back in touch with, with one, codependency. I never had understood how codependent I was and how much I sacrificed and gave up for other people. Mm -hmm. Then also, there were some other addictions that make a person feel good that yeah. 
came to light too that I had you know not dealt with before and then the most eye-opening for me was some trauma when I had been in jail when I was 18 Mm -hmm. there was some uh, uh, abuse and trauma that I had totally just discounted like it never happened I've done four steps as honest as I could ask God to help me and you know, when I got out, I said, oh, did they mess with you in there? I said, oh, no, they tried to. I told them I'd kick their ass. And, you know, I weighed 117 pounds and <laughs> hair down to my shoulders. And, you know, I was in there for 10 days. And, and so it, it just takes it took a while. And if I have any message for anybody with this, is just uh, your body will tell you when you're ready to deal with it. Don't beat yourself up if you're not ready to deal with it when you are you know, God will do it for you. And that, mm-hmm. that was very life changing for me. And before I went to treatment, the lady I was seeing who had about the same amount of sobriety said, I'm really afraid if you don't go get some help, you're, you're closer to taking a drink than you realize that scared the hell out of me. Yeah. That realization of the co-occurring mental health disorders, like in my case, and you, I know mm-hmm. you've listened to enough of these yeah. to know that yeah. I suffer with a clinical depression, but I went and got medical help and got diagnosed. And like you, I spent a lot of years in psychotherapy and talk therapy and medication the whole time, Sure. but it's made living life within sobriety that much better. But so great that you had the kind of group around you that would be supportive of that for you. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you did this work at year 38. Um, what was the impact short-term and long-term for you about that? Well, while I was there doing the work, my second wife filed for divorce. While you were there? Yeah, while I was there. And yeah, and, and this was just shortly after I came off this, the medicine and being disabled for a year. And uh, uh, open and raw after looking at all these things, uh, in my life and inside myself and i was 59 years old and i'm divorcing for the second time and i just thought i was going to be alone the rest of my life which here again was a big fear of mine that you know my life was over and it'd never be the same and fortunately uh miles talked me into moving to austin uh he already lived there and he and i've been close since he came mm-hmm. in and uh came to austin and that wasn't here very long and when was at a meeting and met a girl who was awesome that used to work for me and got 30 she got 31 years sobriety now and started dating and now it's just awesome to have a wife that's uh, emotionally healthier than i am and works a better program than i do she sponsors you know eight or ten girls i'm always sponsoring six or eight guys and we just have the revolving door at our house of people we're working with it's, it's a good life yeah, it sounds like it. And and I got the opportunity to celebrate Miles' birthday with him uh, yesterday at the meeting. Yeah, sorry I couldn't make it. I came in Sunday for his dinner, but yeah, I'm sure it was very touching. He got a standing ovation at the end, and he mentioned you and his share and how how important. And it gave me a, a perspective that, I, I mean, I already heard these things, but for him to say it in front of a group about how instrumental and important you were in his life and in his sobriety was just truly amazing to hear and so that's why whenever it was that I knew that you and I were going to be talking today and then yesterday to be there it just everything fit together really well there are a lot of people I think especially newcomers or people with lesser time anything less than let's say 49 or 50 years but (laughs) let's say people with with much much less than that who are trying to relate to a guy who's got an ungodly amount of time or even somebody who's got 20 or 30 years sure um were there ever times within your sobriety that you kind of took a hiatus from AA or have you been involved all along? What What's that looked like within the 49 years that we're talking about? Yeah, I think I'm a little unusual in that I've always gone to at least three or four meetings a week. I probably average five a week now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I came in, they said, you need to work this program like your life depends on it because it does. And I came in and I just, the love uh, that I felt from the men and in the program, the acceptance, you know, Paul W. said in his talk, he felt useful. All of a sudden, I'd never, nobody was ever glad to see me. And I never felt like I had anything to give till I found this program. Mm-hmm. And it, and I am useful now and it's awesome. Yeah. 
And it's extraordinary to know that even after all these years, you, you still feel that way. Another thing is I always tell people if you, when they think, oh, well, you got 49 years, you got it made. No way. Daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual program. And John D. used to always say, we only possess as much of this program as we practice in our daily affairs. So stop going to meetings and it'll happen. And then uh, other thing I always say is, the more meetings I go to, the better my life gets, and that's true today. Yeah, and that's such an important message, and I, I think it's one that needs to be repeated over and over and over, especially not so much even to the newcomers, because they're getting yeah. a lot at the beginning, but to people right. who are midterm sobriety, who may not have had any of the catastrophic things occur in their life that early on in sobriety. I used to wonder, Pat, I used to think, well, I wonder if something could happen in my life that would make it okay for me to drink. Like, mm -hmm. people would understand and say, well, of course he drank. This catastrophic thing happened. It's, you know, we can't really blame him for it. But yet when the really difficult times occurred at different periods within my sobriety, I dug in and got closer to the men mm -hmm. and the people who were there for me than, than not. But I know there's a natural tendency to be a little bit concerned whether or not the program will work for you when it needs to. Did you ever get that sense? Just to a small degree, because for whatever reason, this not drinking one day at a time yeah. just it fit for me. And when I sobering up four days after my 20th birthday, I didn't plan to stay there 30 days. I was backed in a corner and I was uh -huh. looking for a way to get out. But each day it kept getting a little bit better. And even today, I don't know that I will stay sober the rest of my life. I'm very confident I'm not going to drink today. I just have always looked at it like not today or not one problem I have that taking a drink is going to make any better. You know, it just keeps getting better. And when you work this program, you know that. Yeah. And I've experienced, I keep experiencing it. Yeah, I, I know. And every time I see you and I've seen you for years, you always seem to have that sense of, about you. And, and when I've heard you share that it's still about not drinking one day at a time. It's still about the daily reprieve. It's still about being there for other people and letting them know that they lo that you love them and letting them know it's okay for them to love you. And I've I've caught that in your demeanor for a long, long time. And it's a I think it's a gift. Oh, I do too. But service is just such the key, for, I believe, for happiness and peace of mind. It's as you know, the more I can give, the more I get back. And people out there are hungry to be loved and just like I was when I got here. And so I try to be that person and, and give it back. And the other thing, uh, you know, everybody needs to find their path in service. It looks different for each one of us. I mean, mm -hmm. you look at yours. Nobody else does what you do the way you do it. Nobody else does, you know, what Pat C does or Joe P or, George J is an amazing person that does stuff, but we've all got to find our niche, whatever it is, and, and then here comes the blessings. Yeah, I noticed that. One of the difficult things for me in meetings and when I see men is to see the degree to which so many men feel like they can't be of service because the people that they try helping go out and drink and it's so hard to get past that with people to let them know that it's a success if they stay sober irrespective of what happens to the other person but that's a hard message you get across to people how do you deal with that when you hear it yeah it, it is and you know we see that we hear that a lot of times it's almost like an excuse I think like you say we stay sober and it just means you need to dig in and go find somebody else who needs it. And there's so many people out there that need this program and you can take through the steps, you can read the big book with them. I never get tired of sitting with another alcoholic and reading the big book a page at a time, each of us taking turns. I've been doing that for years with sponsees. I've developed some written work on all 12 of the steps that I give them do with them. Hmm. In fact, about a year and a half ago, Miles and I worked all 12 steps together. It took us about four or five months. Did you? Yeah, and we wrote them out. Yeah, it's, 
it's a great blueprint for life. He mentioned that in the meeting actually yesterday, believe it or not, about going through the all 12 steps. And you could see guys yeah. in the room just incredulous. I mean, uh, you know, a guy with 40 years going through steps again with a guy with almost 50, that's, uh, that's pretty amazing. But it also points to the many gifts that we continue to get no matter how many oh, times yeah. we work the steps, right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. Let me tell you about one of my concerns, and, and maybe maybe you felt this or maybe you can help me, and that is that since the COVID pandemic and since um, the Zoom and the virtual meetings that people are having, what I've found is that there are some people out there who I really care about a lot who were regulars at meetings face-to-face, knee-to-knee, breathing the same air in the same room, who are not going to those meetings and instead are doing Zoom. And it's not because the pandemic is a, a matter of convenience. Whatever the other things are that get in the way of somebody wanting to go to a meeting, it seems to me that there are more than a few people out there who are choosing to Zoom than actually getting up, getting in the car, driving to the meeting, being in the meeting. What kind of take do you have on that whole thing? I, I totally don't think that's a good idea to only do zoom how do you connect with the new person there's something about the energy you know face to face eye to eye when you can really feel somebody hurting and be there and go over and give them a big hug if they need mm-hmm. it and i do i feel like we have a debt to give this back what was given to us and also how you can't connect with the new people on zoom i did zoom we led meetings, all that, all through COVID, but there's nothing like getting back in the rooms and, and doing it. And and I would tell that to anybody. They may not agree and they can keep doing whatever they want. Yeah, I think it's a mistake. And uh, I think you, maybe they're lazy. Uh, you know, maybe they're running from something from themselves. I don't know, but you and I are in the same school on that, definitely. That point was driven home to me a few weeks ago in a meeting that I go to every week that had a Zoom uh, meeting during the uh, pandemic, and we've gone back to live meetings, and we we don't do Zoom anymore. Now, that meeting has been going on for about six years now, and there's a gal who came in for her first time to that meeting, but she'd been sober two years on Zoom, and she'd never been to a live meeting before coming to the meeting that I saw her in. And when she shared, Pat, it was what, what really came really clear to me was one of the things lacking in Zoom versus a regular face-to-face meeting. She said, I'm staying sober because they taught me how to do that online, but I am so lonely. Yeah, there you go. And I thought, somebody who's been sober participating in AA in the electronic version, who's still sitting there saying, I'm so lonely. You know, if you compared the number of people who feel that way who are doing Zoom only with people who are going to live meetings, my guess is there'd be a big disparity there, don't you think? Oh, totally, and it gets back to what you know so well, the meeting after the meeting, the meeting before the meeting. Right. Uh, Up here in Lakeway, my wife and I had organized something where we'd go to Torchy's Tacos before the Friday night Uh meeting invite newer people that you know we just do a group text just like you invite people to lubies when it existed you know whoever's in the meetings invited but we have to have that interaction to get us out of our comfort zone to bring them in that there's more to this life than uh, just being isolated like that and so yeah it's just so important the fellowship and and being of service, and that's that's how you get you know the, these gifts. You know it. Yeah, that's right, and you do know it. And there's a, a visceral element to it all too. What you mentioned earlier about just being able to go up and give people a hug. So you know we're talking about your life now being one that sounds like it's been incredibly enriched by the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you had to describe the last almost 50 years, what would be some of the major milestones for you? Well, certainly uh, the birth of my children, the the gift I've gotten of friendship from the the people I've stayed friends with all my life. Mm. It's what an incredible gift watching them have kids. Now a lot of them, their kids are in the program too, and helping helping them. Uh, uh, you know, there's some business milestones where you know, I didn't I didn't I was enrolled in college slightly, but you know, the things I've gotten to do, the people I've gotten to meet is just incredible. And none of it would have happened without sobriety. And uh, yeah, I'm on my third wife. 
so far best one ever and enjoy my life more than I ever dreamed I could. And, uh, uh-huh. uh, you know, I would say the last few years have been the best years of my life. And I've had a great freaking life out and it just it keeps getting better. And I always say once I got, you know, I told you about that black cloud when I got here, once I committed to this program and got sober, the sun started shining on me. And since then, nothing but good things have kept happening for me, just one after another that I can only attribute to, you know, the grace of God. Yeah, that's really amazing, amazing. that you had so many really cool milestones. Did you face any situations with uh, any additional addiction or alcoholism within your immediate family? Ultimately, I got sober first. My two brothers came in, then my mother, then my father. And, uh, you know, I think one other milestone, just to back up real quick, because it was so significant, is right after I got sober, I was working at the Autry House slinging hash, and uh, I started uh, started playing tennis, and I met this little bit older gentleman. He was in the insurance business, and he... uh, said hey you know you got a great personality you're a natural born salesman you ought to go in the insurance business and i said well great i said i got a problem convicted felon on seven years probation and this one i had about 60 days sober mm-hmm. and he said let me think about this he, next day we go to play tennis he said, hey there's a guy in my office and he is married to the governor's uh, daughter and the governor at that time was Dolph briscoe mm-hmm. and he said uh, he said he'd like to meet you. So I went over, told this guy my story. I was on fire with AA. I was already talking in high schools and Kiwanis clubs, all that stuff. I mean, I was just <laughs> on fire with it. He wrote a letter to the Board of Pardons and Paroles with a copy to the governor. And I've got the original copy right here. My father had kept it uh, on March 25th, 74. I sobered up November 28, 73. I got a full pardon like it never happened. Wow. Yeah. That ha- and, it, and I just thought, oh, I'm a lucky guy. You know, I didn't even realize really until years later how significant that was, how God cleared that away so I could help others. Did it ever occur to you that maybe that kept you sober because you didn't want to blow that? I think I, I think that became just part of my DNA and my commitment to not letting anybody down and being the best AA or I could be. I want to just kind of touch upon your spiritual evolution in the program and, and how did things start out? How did they progress? And how do you view your own spirituality and connectedness with a higher power today? For me, I felt love in my very first AA meeting. I went to the day I came in and the people went around the room and talked and it was like, I really had the feeling my dad had gone up there and like rigged the meeting so they would say these things to try and get me to convince me to be in. But yeah, uh-huh. I felt that love, and for, for me, you know, God is love. And, it, uh, you know, it, it was like freedom. I was absolutely free for, for the first time in my life. I started feeling hope for a better life and for the future. And uh, that's what I get out of AA meetings and in my connection with people. Uh-huh. It's the spiritual side of it. Then when I'd been sober, probably only about 60 days, they had what's called a round robin where they kept us up all night, had a God as you understand it meeting, mm-hmm. uh, had some people telling their stories and speaking. And about four o'clock in that morning after I'd been up all night, just the dam broke. I started sobbing uncontrollably for 30 minutes, you know, and like I told you, I'd never cried or shed a tear for anything. I mean, when I was in jail, all, everything I went through, nothing could phase me. I was like bulletproof. And then all of a sudden it broke. And so, uh, and that was the start of a softening of the heart that is pretty soft these days. Hmm. That was my first vi- spiritual experience where I just felt something that I knew was outside of myself and bigger than me. And it was very early on. I've had I don't know, a thousand of them since then, you know, when you keep your antennas up, it's just amazing how many of them are going on around you if you just pay attention. Yeah, that, that maintenance of our spiritual condition. It never says what kind of maintenance, because some days, for me, spiritual maintenance is just getting through the day. Other days, it, I feel incredibly light and lifted by it. But I think if over time we can just feel 
good in general about our spiritual connection, then uh, it's, it's really important. I want to ask you one, one kind of final question. I haven't asked anybody before, and I, I just kind of, it just occurred to me because of, you know, your longevity and your success in and love of the program. Okay. If you had some kind of magic power or magic wand and you were to look at AA just in general, if you had a magic wand that you could wave sure. and either add to or take away something about AA that either would enhance or detract from the program, what would you use that wand for and, and how would it look? Wow, that's... That's a very deep question, but I believe I would use it to somehow convince or transmit to people the power of love, of hugging, of touching uh, each other, I mean, in a positive way, but uh, of just making people feel more accepted and more at home quicker because that that was what I got and that's what I see mm -hmm. missing a lot of times but I try to be the guy that fills that void and uh, it's it's really amazing how much pain people are in and how they're hurting and how a touch or a, you know a text message or a phone call at the right time to somebody new changes their life and I've been blessed to have that experience many many times mm, that's beautiful that's beautiful and and that lines up very closely with my belief about people need to not only be touched but they need to be remembered and mm, exactly I work pretty hard at remembering people's names but I, I I think nothing makes a person feel more connected in a meeting than when they come into that meeting and somebody has remembered them from the last meeting it's glad to see them Exactly. And then the hugs that are exchanged with men and women coming in, it's just that little bit of additional connectedness that we all need, I think. Mm -hmm. Not only from AA, but from the rest of the world as well. So For sure. And you are a, a major, major shining star, I think, amongst the AA universe here, Pat. And I'm so happy that you were willing to do this today. Is there anything that uh, you'd like to say just in general for people to know? Yep. Happens to be. And whenever I, I speak or do something like this, I always, there's one paragraph in the big book, you're gonna know it because you know the stories, but it's in the story, he sold himself short. Yeah. And that was the man that started the mustard seed, uh, got sober before there were even 12 steps or just six steps. And mm -hmm. his story is in the book, and I guess he had about 13 years, but. It, it seems much wiser than that. But here's the last paragraph. Mm -hmm. It's on page 269. Whew. See, I'm good with not being teary. He says, and this applies to me, I'm rated as a modestly successful man. My stock of material goods isn't great, but I have a fortune in friendships, courage, self-assurance, and honest appraisal of my own abilities. Above all, I have gained the greatest thing accorded to any man, the love and understanding of a gracious God who has lifted me from the alcoholic scrap heap to a position of trust where I've been able to reap the rich rewards that come from showing a little love for others and from serving them as I can. That's powerful. That's powerful. Yeah. Says it all. And you know what's really so powerful about that, Pat, is that was said by a man over 80 years ago. Exactly. Who may have been sober, what do you think? Now, I think he had about 13 years when he wrote this. Yeah, that's what I think. I've done the math, but he came in before the big book was written. God. There were just six steps, but stayed sober and started the mustard seed. But yeah, it's as true today as it was 80 years ago. That's how this thing works. Yeah. While you were reading it, I was seeing that connection between the heart, you know, between that love that you were talking about that transcends time and space. Mm -hmm. And even to this day can still bring a tear to our eyes. And, uh, yeah. you know, it, I'm always an envy of men who can emote in meetings. I'm not very good at it, but when, but when it happens, 
happens like this morning i can i can sense your emotion about it and i'm feeling <laughs> that way as well and I, and i really want to thank you a lot for doing this today it it means the world to me and my feeling is there will be some people out there who hear it and will immediately identify with it but more so those who listen to it wondering whether or not they could ever become the guy with almost 50 years and knowing that it can be done because you've done it. So it's a, it's a big thing. Exactly. Again, many thanks, Pat. Yeah, thank you for all you do, man. You're amazing too. You've found your slot and you do it very, very well. So I admire and respect the hell out of you as well. Well, thank you. We'll have our own little mutual admiration society based on love and mutual respect. There you go, sure. So I love you, Pat. I love you too, thanks. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Pat C., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please take a minute to give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That will help others find it. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all podcast production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.